Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. In this week's episode, we're looking at one of the most powerful growth levers your startup can pull, retention, a problem that's really rooted within your product. Joining me to explain why that is, is Sean Klaus, VP of Product Management at Metro Mile. If you're not familiar with Metro Mile, put simply, it's really a pay-per-mile insurance product that essentially is looking to disrupt the way auto insurance is sold. But Sean is probably best known for his work prior to that, where he spent six years at a company that forever changed the way software is sold. That, of course, is Atlassian, where he was the head of growth and essentially built the growth team from the ground up to more than 50 individuals by the time he departed Atlassian just earlier this year. In our chat, Sean explains why he believes growth is fundamentally a product-related exercise. What growth teams are fundamentally about is they're about the search process of discovering why it is that people fail to capture value from your software and connecting all of those people back to it. Why startups cannot afford to overlook their retention problems. It just never ceases to amaze me how much time we as an industry spend optimizing our acquisition tactics, right? Like acquiring a huge bunch of people. And then you look at like the number of people that drop off in the first five minutes, the first 10 minutes, the first day. It always breaks my heart. And the importance of bringing a growth mindset into your organization. When you are focused on trying to solve a bunch of market problems that exist, you get used to shipping big answers to big problems. It's kind of what you do. And so the growth mindset is a little bit antithetical to that. While producing this episode, Sean and I tried something totally new for Inside Intercom. Rather than linking up in our recording studio, we actually took the show out of the office and recorded live from Intercom's Dreamforce Speakeasy in the Soma District of San Francisco. If you like what you hear and want to check out more Inside Intercom episodes, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Also, if you've got feedback on our first live format, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me a note over at podcast at intercom.com. And now, let's get into this week's conversation, where I'm joined by Sean Klaus from the Intercom Dreamforce Speakeasy. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Sean, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Just to get us started, could you give us a rundown of your time at Atlassian and what you're doing today at Metro Mile? Yeah, sure. So when I first joined Atlassian, I was running the Jira Agile product. So basically, we were building the Agile interface into Jira, the well-known software development product. And you know that, that was a really interesting experience. But what was happening at the same time was Atlassian was bringing this consumer model to enterprise software. And what we could see at the same time was that the consumer SaaS businesses were starting to do this thing called growth, right? And we're like, that's interesting. Like, can you really do small tweaks that massively, uh, you know, increase your growth as a business? What's in that? And can that be applied in our type of business, which was an enterprise sales business? And so we decided we'd give it a go. And so I ended up leading a team of five people. We were like this little band of merry people out there trying to, you know, change Atlassian from the inside out. And so basically we had, you know, analysts, uh, developers, myself, right? And we just started from zero and we had no, none of anything, right? And we had to build it all, figure it all ourselves, right? And see, can you bring growth to the enterprise and B2B SaaS space? And so it was an amazing experience. And so over four years, five years, we built out kind of everything you could imagine a growth team needs. We built out all the analytics at Atlassian, voice of the customer, an experimentation platform, and shipped thousands of experiments in order to try and find where Atlassian was losing customers and gain as many users as we possibly could. Give me a sense for where Atlassian was at a company when this endeavor started and then where you guys were when you left. When I first joined Atlassian, there were about 300 people. When I left, there were about over 2,500 people. So that was a massive growth trajectory. When we started 
you know, growth. We started with five people and by the, by the end we had over 50 people in growth, which I guess probably makes us by far the largest uh, B2B growth team uh, in the industry. And that was because we'd built this like kind of engine of that could do it all, that, 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 that had the voice of the customer, that had the analytics capability, that had the experimentation capability and the product management necessary to actually start shipping that, that whole experimentation roadmap and kind of really make a difference on the business. So we, we became like a strategic pillar, just like a product in Atlassian would be. So there was like Jira and there's Confluence and there was growth as well as a pillar of the business. That's great. And so just to set the foundation for this whole chat, really, what is meaningful growth mean to you and what was the what does the mission of a growth team look like what were you guys really tasked with doing meaningful growth is a is a challenging one right because sometimes when people talk about meaningful growth they kind of mean it in the sense of like well is it hactics is it you know is growth like inauthentic right and and there is 100% the concept of inauthentic growth and you know growth teams that are kind of doing it you know the the immoral way or whatever is, is, is what gives growth kind of a bit of a name, right? You know, but, but like the core of what's going on there is actually really, really valuable and important. And, and that's because like when you ship products, you are fundamentally shipping the solution to problems, right? And you get product market fit when it turns out there are people who have that problem who can find your software and solve that problem using your software, right? So product market fit is critical. Authentic growth happens from connecting people to your software, but the bit that's missing in that whole argument is the fact that there are a bunch of people who, for a variety of different reasons, either fail to find your software or fail to successfully use it or fail to successfully capitalize on all that it is capable of, right? And so, for me, what growth teams are fundamentally about is they're about the search process of discovering why it is that people fail to capture value from your software and connecting all of those people back to it. And so sometimes they do big things, sometimes they do small things, but, but it's all the same. It's always this view of why is the customer failing to get the value that we aim to deliver as a business and as a product. Right. So how can we, once we acquire these customers, make sure that they not only discover that value quickly, but frequently and often, right? 100%. And deep in their engagement. Like when you think about like software, it's funny how, you know, most product teams have a tendency to think outside in, in other words, what are the problems that exist at the start, when they start building a product, right? Then they ship a product and then they start thinking inside out. Now it's like, what features can I deliver to the marketplace? But the customer is still outside in, right? They still have none of your, your context, none of your understanding, and they're trying to leverage this monstrosity of a bit of software that over time you add feature and feature and feature to, and so they fail to capture all this value and you overshoot their ability to, to successfully capture the value massively, and you don't even realize you're doing it unless you have some way of constantly inspecting and understanding and thinking and retrying and iterating on all of that whole process. It's interesting. It's almost like you're acquiring, acquiring a form of debt, similar to the way you would acquire technical debt, but it's really feature debt. Th th that is literally exactly how I think about it. It's funny that you mentioned that because like, I understand that shipping features that are not used leads to a form of technical debt. And I get that that's a painful thing, but it is pales in comparison to the, the cost that you pay when a user looks at your software when a user looks at your software and does not use a feature, it's not as though they just can't see it. It's not as though they're blind to it. They see it and they start thinking to themselves, I don't know what that is. I'm scared. I'm worried. I don't know if this software is right for me anymore. It looks really complex. It looks really hard. I might just not use it anymore, right? And so, like, don't worry about the engineering cost. Worry about the fact that you were literally making it impossible for your user to capture your value. It's, it's a, just a massive problem in all software as you grow past your MVP and your product market fit. So you mentioned product market fit there. It's a term that 
has thrown a lot a lot. Most people say you're ready to grow and invest in growth when you have product market fit. But to you, what does that actually look like? How do you determine that you're there? Yeah, so for this one, I, I like to lean back on something that Sean Ellis once wrote, wrote a really interesting blog post about. He talked about the three golden questions, but the one that really resonated with me was that you want to ask your customers, some group of people, presumably they are retained because they care about your software, so I guess that's kind of the fundamental basis, but you want to ask a group of people and you want to ask them, if this software did not exist anymore, would you be sad? right? And how sad would you be, right? And you want some portion of people who are in your target market to say they would be gutted or they would be substantially affected by that, right? If what you get is silence and there, it doesn't have to be everybody, it just has to be enough people that clearly have captured the value, can see how it changes their life and that would be sad if it ceased to exist, right? Like that, that's the core that you can build out from and it's funny how so many products kind of end up as like vitamins but not even strong vitamins of like yeah okay like kind of useful I could use a little bit of that but they haven't actually found a core which they can double down on. I love the way you boiled that down so simply because there are a lot of metrics that are typically associated with it. Lifetime value I know is a big part of the calculation that's something that Casey Winters who's a growth advisor at Greylock speaks about a lot but that really simple question is a much more tangible way to look at it. Yeah, and when you're a startup, right, like, you know, LTV is going to be very hard for you to model successfully and to have any idea if it's real, you know. And so, like, there are these constellation of things that you can do. The question is, at, at the point of your development, what are you ready for, right? What will give you the signal that you need at that time in order to give you something that you can proceed with, right? And so, like, Casey's thinking is always really advanced, and I, I think he's a really great writer in this topic. So the question is, like, can I apply those, or do I need to simplify a little bit more in order to deliver something that I can use. So today at Metro Mile, you're at a much smaller company, startup than what Atlassian had become by the time you left. I think it was 85,000 paying customers by the time that you left the company to do this. So I imagine the types of problems you're tackling are quite different. I mean, you have a smaller customer base. You probably need to test larger things to see what kind of impact they actually have. Are you having to go back to first principles now? Do you feel like you're back to where you were at the beginning of your Atlassian days? Yeah, I think I think the advantage we have now is that like it, you know there are a bunch of principles and procedures and technologies and approaches that the industry has now discovered. So it's kind of it actually doesn't feel the same because like while you know I don't have the same sample size for various experiments, right? So experiments are going to have to be uh, you know you're going to have to use a bit more directional information rather than necessarily getting stats and everything. What is different now is that it's just so much clearer about how to build a growth program, how to execute one, how to measure one, right? And so I feel like when you bring that type of toolbox to a product like Metromile, which is actually quite complex for consumers to understand, because while it is paper mile insurance, the process of wh by which you enroll in this thing, understand what it is, how you're going to be charged, how you're going to be retained, all of those things are actually incredibly complex problems to communicate and challenges to communicate. So I feel like, yes, there are, there are some things that I lose compared to Atlassian, but there are a lot of things that I gain in terms of, you know, just a very interesting problem space and a bunch of tools that I can bring to the space. So talk to me a little bit more about what are the, those big trends that have emerged in those years that have taken place since you started the Atlassian growth team versus what you're doing today in terms of how software companies are tackling growth. I mean, have we gotten past the point where Anytime you do an AMA or anything like that, or you're having to explain what you do, that people aren't asking for this magical silver bullet that in no way, shape, or form exists? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's true, right? I, I mean, magic bullets are less of a thing that people are pushing for. 
and in general people just understand the concept of A-B testing and stat significance and the idea that it's important to do this. So you kind of can circumvent some of the, some of the debate. Um, but I think the more valuable stuff for me is that, A, when we started at ASEAN, we had to build all of our own everything, right? So like I mentioned, we built our own analytics system, we built our own experimentation system, we built our own measurement system, we built it all, literally all of it from ground up. And, you know, today you'd look back on that and just think that's insane, right? Like, you just wouldn't do that. There's a bunch of open source and available software, SaaS software that you can leverage now. And I think more importantly than just the technology stack, we now have, like, just more advanced thinking of what it is we need, what a program looks like, how you build one, how you think about growth strategy, all of those kind of keys to a way in which to think about the problems. And that's... Uh, hugely valuable, right? Because that allows you to kind of start with nothing and avoid the whole push for silver bullets and go, okay, here's the thinking framework for this. And now we're starting. So at this stage in our development, we need this tactic. And then we're going to, you know, start the ball rolling down the hill. And when we reach, you know, month three, we're going to roll this in. And month six, we're going to roll this in. And month 12, we're going to roll that in. So speaking of starting from nothing, I know one issue with any new team is that where do you start? And I see a lot of growth teams that will sort of look at small optimizations first, but where do you think the problems are they should really be tackling right away are? Yeah, I mean, for, for, for me, the blank page problem, which I basically think of as fundamentally activation, it's the, it's the handover between the marketing site that has sold you all of this amazing goodness to your first experience actually in the product. That is like this yawning chasm that exists in our industry, right? And it is just amazing that it continues to persist because, like, you have worked out exactly what it is the user needs to hear. That's why you've acquired them. You've worked out exactly what their problems are because you've told them them in the, in the marketing acquisition funnel, right? And so then, as soon as they click try, you land them on this empty page. It's insanity, right? Because they, they have been shown these screenshots, shown this value, told this is going to be so amazing. And now you use different language. You, have no, you don't give them any guidance about how to succeed. Like, it's just like this accelerating people into a brick wall. It's a really uh, substantial problem that we face and so I think that you know like growth teams these days like if they ask me for advice like my advice is almost always that activation is where you know the vast majority of your initial value is going to be is going to be picked up and the simple way in which you're going to go about doing that is carry the promises that you made from marketing through into the software that's all you have to do you have to carry it through and that's not easy because it's not trivial to work out how to do that in very complex software right but if you have that as a guiding principle and then you begin your iteration cycle of, of trying to work out how to do that you will definitely strike gold right because the customers are there to get that value they've decided they they believe in you it's up to you to kind of meet that brand promise that you made. So what types of conversations can a growth team member having have with marketing or sales to make sure like everyone is on the same page? And when that baton handoff happens, it doesn't feel like the customer, when using the product, is having a different conversation, essentially, with the product than they were when they were sold on it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's why, you know, a growth team, an effective growth team that's working in the activation space really has to be tightly aligned and coupled with marketing and with sales because they really need to be understanding what are the promises that, that are being made. And from there, they can basically come up with a set of hypotheses that they can test about how to, to pass that message through. And what tends to happen is that those groups have a, actually just don't communicate to each other. It's like this handoff moment that happens at the try button or at the sign up button. And like, from, a, from the customer's perspective, you're shipping your org chart. But more importantly, like from the, from the organization's perspective, you're missing this great opportunity to really you know, capture those people and keep those people. If you think about this from an outside-in perspective and you think about it from the perspective of that user, right? 
this isn't just a I can't figure out how to use this software. This feels like a bait and switch. Like this feels like you told me X was going to be possible, and you have not just not made this possible. It is impossible, right? You've told me something and given me another, and so it's like negative brand equity. It's like negative word of mouth. So that's why it's such a critical issue, I think. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience, it's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now, and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Do you feel that startups ever underestimate the depreciation of particular tactics, like onboarding, for instance? Do people fail to revisit their onboarding? Because it's one thing to get it humming, but these things change, context changes. You straight up hit on one of my favorite topics on this. Like, I, I look at, say, for example, an activation program as a never-ending stream of work. It's fundamentally a champion challenger problem. It's not a, we will solve it, and we will ship it, and we will be done. And the reason it is is because, like, we run hundreds, hundreds of experiments in activation at Atlassian, and the vast majority of them failed, right? But uh, the ones that succeeded, succeeded in such a massive, like, metric-moving way that for the investment versus the reward, it was incredible, right? And there were times when we shipped an onboarding flow, and we were like, well, is that the best we can do? And I guess my argument was always like, we will never know until we continue mining this, this seam. And the answer was, we always did better. We always managed to do better. And the second reason that, like, clearly you must keep doing this is because your brand promise keeps changing. So the features that you deliver to the market change. And so if your onboarding is static, then, you're, again, you will fail to, to meet your promise. Plus, just your product itself changes, the way in which its information architecture exists. It's just this constant program of work to try and make certain that you are safely delivering those users from the marketing site into the product and then from their first touch of the product to getting their value and from getting their value to forming a habit and from a habit into high engagement, right? It's that simple. You want to safe hands. Think about the safe hands. Whether it be acquisition, which we've sort of focused on so far, or retention, which I really want to get into because I know you've got a lot to say about it. One of the tools that's really emerged in the time since you started your team at Atlassian versus what you're doing today is messengers. So... As someone coming from Atlassian's self-serve world, what's your take on that? Like, is it just another channel or does it fundamentally change the way we can help people find the value of our product and get them onboarded? Yeah, this one's a tough one for me, right? Because I guess when I think about these types of challenges, I'm always like, well, if we put a human in the loop, 
right? We are fundamentally going to paper over a bunch of ugly parts, right? Like we, we are going to have these interactions that are going to unlock what is wrong with our software and how do we capture those and scale them? So whenever, whenever we put a human in the loop, I think there's a huge opportunity to both improve the business, right, help people move forward, as long as you're also collecting that information in order to continue. Whenever you put humans in the loop, in my mind, the goal is also to work out how you're going to get them out, right? And, and so what you'll end up with is this really valuable feedback cycle where, where the humans are helping your customers succeed, they're, they're feeding the data back, you're using that to make those humans redundant for that need, but then the humans get back in to answer some other need that you don't really know about, and the cycle continues. That, that to me is the important thing. And, and you know, when, you, when you just put people in the loop, you know, the, the negative downsides can be, can be a challenge. So speaking of retention, I know a lot of people are tempted to focus on acquisition, but you really believe that you got to solve the retention problem first. I know you could go on for a long time about this, but keeping it within a few minutes, why? Yeah. So I think it, it just never ceases to amaze me how much time we, we as an as a industry spend optimizing our acquisition tactics, right? Like acquiring a huge bunch of people. When you think about that, when you think about all the energy that has gone into this of understanding who those people are and how to go and find them, and then you look at like the number of people that drop off in the first five minutes, the first 10 minutes, the first day, it always breaks my heart, right? And like even at Atlassian where I felt like we were getting better and better at this, right? And we had the charts that would show us what was happening. Every one of those people is a person who you have fundamentally burnt, right? Like you, you have failed to give them what, what you told them you would give them just from like a, like a wasted opportunity cost for you as a business, but also like brand damage and everything else that goes with it. So when I think about the ROI of things you can do in a business, making certain that, that, that your customer is safely handed from acquisition to the activation, making certain that they are activated and you have done everything in your power in order to make certain they are activated in terms of they have found their aha moment and they have begun habit forming and then making certain that they're getting the maximum value from your software through engagement, like those are generally very low investment because they're a problem finding. They're like, you have to find the problems. So they're a search problem and an optimization problem. So they're low investment, but potentially with massive rewards. And the thing is that not only are they rewarding because you keep those users, if you truly succeed at that and you get high engagement at the end of that, then what you really get is sustainable businesses because you get word of mouth, right? People who are highly engaged with your software are always the people who love it, right? And those people who love it will tell other people. And the most authentic form of acquisition by far, all day, every day, is word of mouth, right? And it's amazing the business you can build once you have that uh, engine going. So what's your recommendation when it comes to how to engage those users who love using your product and evangelize what they have to say? Yeah, I mean, I guess the way I initially think about that is that, you know, you, you really just want to drive them up the engagement curve. You need to have a way of understanding where are your users as far as state goes. Like, are they brand new? Have they gained any value? Have they had that aha moment? Have they had the habit-forming uh, loop happen? And then have they achieved high engagement? And then... I feel like most of the magic happens by itself in terms of like people who are highly engaged have a tendency to tell their friends. But then you can also literally just ask them. Because the thing is that, like, I don't know if you've ever tried this tactic, but it's like a, a kind of obvious tactic in the industry now. But if, if somebody gives you like a 9 or a 10 NPS and then you say, hey, okay, thank you for that. Would you mind tweeting about us? Or would you mind emailing one of your friends right now? A lot of people 
not only won't feel insulted by that request, they'll be like, that's actually a really great idea. I didn't even think about that. I really want to tell Bob, my friend, about it, right? Because they like you. They want they want to help your business. They feel an affinity because you have solved something that they care about. And that's what I mean about the authentic element of that. I know you can't prescribe tactics without knowing anyone's business. I always, this a pet peeve of mine when I hear people ask, well, what, what exactly should I do next? But there's got to be some low-hanging fruit there as far as strategy, though, right, when it comes to retention? Yeah, sure. I mean, like, when, when it comes to retention, again, I, I would emphasize like having an understanding of what your view is of your, at your activation loop because your problem is almost always going to be in activation first. So if, if you have $100 and you're starting... I'd be betting like $80 of it uh, in the activation phase because mostly what happens is people fail to have their aha moment and even if they have their aha moment, they drop out before it becomes a habit, right? And so there's a huge amount of value there. I guess the tactics that, that I use in that space are like firstly understanding what my drop-off rates are and then kind of watching uh, users in their very first experience and trying to understand, okay, what are the buttons they don't find? What, what are the things they are confused about? And then trying really simple stuff like, you know, a dialogue box saying, these are the things you are probably looking for and three buttons on it, like that lead them in the most likely three places they want to go, right? It's amazing. Like, I've, like we, at Atlassian, we tried all sorts of things. Like we, at one point, we had a 12-step onboarding flow, right? It was deeply involved and it had a whole bunch of things that it taught you and it was very successful. So good for us. And then, but when I talk about Champion Challenger, one of the things we did was that we were constantly trying to beat that and so we later on ended up with an onboarding flow that was called Choose Your Own Adventure. And it literally was what I just described to you. It was one dialog box with three buttons. And it turned out that it outperformed the 12-step program because the 12-step program was trying to tell you enough that you could do the rest, right? But it turns out that most of the people who were arriving in the software wanted to do one of three things, right? So rather than needing to educate them about those three things, about the way in which they could go about thinking about the software and find it, just giving it to them was enough as well, right? And so that's you know some of the really simple stuff you can do in that space. I really like that 12-step program example, and I think it is a nice transition into one of the last things I want to talk to you about today, which is this challenge of bringing a growth mindset into a startup organization that doesn't already have a growth team. So the idea of embracing things like iterative improvements or being agnostic to process. What are the greater cultural challenges that a startup faces when adapting this mentality? You know, large businesses or small businesses, I think to some degree face similar challenges when they're introducing a growth team. The thing is that like when you are focused on trying to solve a bunch of market problems that exist, you get used to shipping big answers to big problems, right? It's kind of what you do, right? And so the growth mindset is a little bit antithetical to that because it's like the question is basically we don't know exactly what the problems are. We can take some guesses and then we can test whether or not we're right or not and we can, we can make that a butter-churning machine that we can constantly turn over. And so there's this kind of natural, I guess, anxiousness or misalignment and particularly in startups or even big companies as well because there's a competition for resources. When you're trying to ship really big, hard things, you're like, why do you want a team of five people off doing rats and mice work, right? And, and I guess the, the answer to that is that, you know, we are shipping all of this great work. This, this work deserves to be used. It deserves to be connected to our users, right? And while we, are, while we are doing big things, it's very hard for us also to go back and look and to find all these places where it's not being captured, right? And so our customers deserve that from us. They deserve that we will go back, we will work out where they're getting lost and being unable to capture the value, and we will help them succeed. Not only will it help our business, but it literally is the right thing to do for us to our, for our, to our customers. So looking sort of inside out then, how do you make sure that once you've established that, that team doesn't then become siloed? I mean, how do you make sure that communication lines are still open with 
with product, with design, with marketing, sales support, that growth isn't sort of off on their own doing these experiments? Yeah, well, I mean, like that's that's when things really get tough in the growth world, when they're viewed as potentially a competitor or just off doing their own thing, right? So you need to be very careful to make certain that effectively those other organizations are your partners, not your competitors. And in some cases, you end up with marketing competing with growth, growth competing with product, everybody competing with everybody else, right? And, and the net net is that we all have a job to do. Marketing has a product to tell people about, to connect to value. Uh, product has the job of producing more value that, that we can capitalize on for our customers. And growth's job is to make certain that as many people get connected to that value as humanly possible. And so I think that if you set that up as a framework of roles and responsibilities, and you're clear about what it is you are there to do, which is extract that, that value, and therefore that you are there to help and work with other teams, then you tend to get much better results. So it starts in an early moment when you're first building a growth team. There's like this early moment of like you need to get some wins, right? And that can be uh, competitive and it can feel like you're poking holes in other people's software because you're like you're in there getting early wins. And there's one way you can look at that is like product shipped something wrong because look, we came in and we changed two buttons and suddenly we got, you know, 12% better activation. But that's not the principle. You need to be clear that that's not what we're doing. We're not doing this to prove that you were wrong. We're not doing this to prove that your processes weren't correct. We're doing this because it's the nature of the world that we need somebody to come through and, and, and apply this thinking. Yeah, but if we're putting our customer first, then it makes sense. Yeah, 100%. Sean, we could go on for a long time, but uh, you've already shared part of your evening with us and we really appreciate it. It's amazing how many people will raise their hand and say yes to talking in a private studio for 30 minutes or an hour, but Braving real life people is a whole other story. So thanks again for stopping in this evening. Uh, before we go, where can our listeners go to find out more about Metro Mile or your thinking on growth in general? Yeah, so I guess uh, if you want to learn more about Metro Mile, metromile.com. Uh, we're presently in seven states here in the US, so give it a go. Uh, we're transforming insurance. Uh, in terms of my thinking about growth, I I'm not really a big blogger, but, but I uh, can really thoroughly recommend the Reforge program, which Brian Balfour runs, because like, effectively, I think he's like a really sophisticated thinker in this area, and he's really bringing process and rigor to things. And so I um, just think it's a great place to start if you're looking to get deeper in growth. And you've been known to speak there a time or two, I hear. Once or twice, once or twice, if he can twist my arm. All right, Sean, well, this has been fun. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Cheers. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.